Section two of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume two, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Chapter one, Medici in Rome, by F. X. Kraus, Part one. On the eighteenth of August, fifteen o three. After a sudden and mysterious illness, Alexander VI had departed this life, to the unspeakable joy of all Rome, as Guicciardini assures us. Crowds thronged to see the dead body of the man whose boundless ambition, whose perfidy, cruelty, and licentiousness, coupled with shameless greed, had infected and poisoned all the world. On this side of the Alps, the verdict of Luther's time and of the centuries which followed has confirmed the judgment of the florentine historian without extenuation and so far as borgia himself was concerned doubtless this verdict is just but to-day if we consider alexander's pontificate objectively we can recognize its better sides let it pass as personal ambition that he should have been the first of all the popes who definitely attempted to create a modern state from the conglomerate of the old stati pontifici and that he should have endeavored as he undeniably did step by step to secularize that state and to distribute among his friends the remaining possessions of the church but in two ways his government shows undeniable progress in the midst of constant tumult during which without interruption tyranny succeeded to tyranny in the petty states when for centuries neither life nor property had been secure Caesar Borgia had established in the Romagna an ordered government, just and equal administration of the laws, provided suitable outlets for social forces, and brought back peace and security, and by laying out new streets, canals, and by other public works, indicated the way to improve agriculture and increase manufacture. Guicciardini himself recognizes all this and adds the important comment that now the people saw how much better it was for the italians to obey as a united people one powerful master than to have a petty despot in every town who must needs be a burden on the townsfolk without being able to protect and help them and here guicciardini touches the second point which marks the pontificate of alexander the sixth the appearance still vague and confused of the idea of a future union of the italian states and their independence of foreign rule and interference alexander played with this great political principle though he did not remain faithful to it to what could he have been faithful was not his very nature immoral and perfidious to its core but now and then at least he made as if he would blazon on his banner the motto italia fara de se this brought him a popularity which nowadays it is hard to understand and made it possible for him the most unrighteous man in italy to gain the victory over the most righteous man of his time and to stifle savonarola's reforming zeal among the ashes at the stake the idea of a great reformation of the church in both head and members had arisen since the beginning of the thirteenth century and was the less likely to fade from the mind of nations since the complaints of the evils of church government were growing daily more serious and well grounded and one hope of improvement after another had been wrecked 
no means of bringing about this reform was neglected. All had failed. Francis of Assisi had opposed to the growing materialism and worldliness of the church the idea of renunciation and poverty. But Gregory the Ninth had contrived to win over the order founded by the saint to the cause of the papacy, and to set in the background the founder's original purpose. Thrust into obscurity in the inner sanctuary of the order, this purpose, tinged by a certain schismatic coloring, developed in the hands of the spirituales into the ecclesia spiritualis, as opposed to the ecclesia carnalis, which stood for the official church. Traces of this thought are to be found in Dante. We may even call it the starting point, whence he proceeds to contrast his monarchia with the political papacy of the 14th century, and is a pioneer to develop with keen penetration and energy the modern idea of the state. The opponents of the popes of Avignon in reality not only fought against their politics without paying any attention to the moral regeneration of Christendom. Theological science in the 15th century raised the standard of reform against the dependence of the papacy, the triple schism, and the disruption of the church. But she too succumbed, her projects foiled, at the great ecclesiastical conferences of Constance and Basel. Asceticism, politics, theology had striven in vain. The close of the Middle Ages on both sides of the Alps were marked by outbursts of popular discontent, and voices which from the heart of the nations cried for reform, prophesying the catastrophe of the 16th century. None of these voices was mightier than Savonarola's, or left a deeper echo. He was the contemporary and opponent of the men who were to give their name to this epoch in Rome's history. The House of the Medici passes for the true and most characteristic exponent of the Renaissance movement. We cannot understand the nature and historical position of the Medician papacy without an attempt to explain the character and development of this movement. The discovery of man since Dante and Giotto the discovery of nature by the naturalism of Florence, the revival of classical studies, and the reawakening of the antique in art and literature are its component parts. But its essence can only be grasped if we regard the Renaissance as the blossoming and unfolding of the mind of the Italian people. The early Renaissance was indeed the Vita Nuova of the nation. It is an error to believe that it was in opposition to the Church. Art and the artists of the 13th century recognized no such opposition. It is the church who gives the artists employment and sets them their tasks. The circle of ideas in which they move is still entirely religious. The breach with the religious allegory and symbolism of the Middle Ages did not take place until the 16th century. In the 14th century, the spread of naturalistic thought brought about a new conception of the beauty of the human body. This phase was in opposition to the monastic ideal, yet it had in it no essential antagonism to Christianity. It was a necessary stage of the development which was to lead from realism, dominant for a time, to a union of the idealist and realist standpoints. Many of the popes were entirely in sympathy with this Renaissance. Several of them opposed the pagan and materialistic degeneration of humanism, but none of them accused the art of the Renaissance of being inimical to Christianity. 
its pagan and materialistic side not content with restoring antique knowledge and culture to modern humanity eagerly laid hold of the whole intellectual life of a heathen time together with its ethical perceptions its principles based on sensual pleasure and the joy of living these it sought to bring to life again this impulse was felt at the very beginning of the fifteenth century since the middle of the century it had ventured forth even more boldly in florence naples rome in the days of reggio valla beccadelli and despite many a repulse had even gained access to the steps of the papal throne a literature characterized by the facetiae by lorenzo valla's voluptuous and beccadelli's hermaphroditus could not but shock respectable feeling florence was the headquarters of this school and lorenzo il magnifico its chief supporter scenes that took place there in his day in the streets and the squares the extravagances of the youth of the city lost in sensuality the writings and pictures offered to the public would and must seem to earnest-minded christians a sign of approaching dissolution a reaction was both natural and justifiable giovanni dominici had introduced it at the beginning of the century and fra antonino of san marco had supported it while archbishop of florence with the authority of his blameless life devoted to the service of his fellow men and so cosimo's foundation became the centre and starting point of a movement destined to attack his own house at the head of that movement stood fra girolamo savonarola grief over the degradation of the church had driven him into a monastery and now it led him forth to the pulpits of san marco and santa maria del fiore as a youth he had sung his dirge de ruina ecclesiae in a canzone since grown famous as a man he headed the battle against the immorality and worldliness of the curia he was by no means illiterate but in the pagan and sensual tendency of humanist literature and in the voluptuous freedom of art he saw the source of evil and in lorenzo and his sons pernicious patrons of corruption zeal against the immorality of the time the worldliness of the prelates and preachers made him overlook the lasting gains that the renaissance and humanism brought to humanity he had no sympathy with this development of culture from the fresh young life of his own people he did not understand the young italy of his day behind this luxuriant growth he could not see the good and fruitful germ and here as in the province of politics he lost touch with the pulse of national life his plan of a theocratic state governed only by christ its invisible head was based on momentary enthusiasm and therefore untenable he was too deficient in aesthetic sense to be able to rise in inward freedom superior to discords like a dead man amongst the living he left italy to bear the clash of those contradictions which the great mind of julius the second sought unhappily in vain to fuse in one conciliatory scheme such a scheme of conciliation meantime made its appearance in florence not without the cooperation and probably the encouragement of the medici it was connected with the introduction of platonism which since the time of the council of florence in fourteen thirty eight was represented in that city by enthusiastic and learned men like bessarion and was zealously furthered by cosimo the pater patriae in the academy which he had founded 
from the learned societies started for these purposes come the first attempts to bring not only plato's philosophy but the whole of classical culture into a close and essential connection with christianity platonism seemed to them the link which joined christianity with antiquity Bessarion himself had taught the internal relationship of both principles and marsilio ficino and pico della mirandola made the explanation of this theory the work of their lives if both of them went too far in their youthful enthusiasm and mysticism and conceived christianity almost as a continuation of attic philosophy this was an extravagance which left untouched the sincerity of their own belief and from which marsilio when he grew older attempted to free himself giovanni and giulio de medici son and nephew of lorenzo were both marsilio's pupils both were destined to wear the tiara and took a decided part in the scheme for conciliating these contrasts which julius the second set forth by means of raphael's brush the victory of the borgia over the monk of san marco was not likely to discourage the sceptic and materialistic tendency whose worst features were incarnate in alexander the sixth and cesar borgia pietro pompanazzo furthered it by his notorious phrase that a thing might be true in philosophy and yet false in theology a formula that spread its poison far and wide even then in florence a genius was developing that was to prove the true incarnation of the pagan renaissance and modern realism the flames which closed over savonarola had early convinced niccolo machiavelli that no reform was to be looked for from rome savonarola's distrust of humanism and his harsh verdict on the extreme realism of contemporary art were not extinguished with his life a few years later we find his thoughts worked out or rather extended and distorted in literature castellisi adriano di cornetto formerly secretary to alexander the sixth and created cardinal may thirty first fifteen o three wrote his de vera philosophia exquator doctoribus ecclesiae in direct opposition to the renaissance and humanism the author represents every scientific pursuit indeed all human intellectual life as useless for salvation and even dangerous dialectics astronomy geometry music and poetry are but vainglorious folly aristotle has nothing to do with paul nor plato with peter all philosophers are damned their wisdom vain since it recognized but a fragment of the truth and marred even this by misuse they are the patriarchs of heresy what are physics ethics logic compared with the holy scriptures whose authority is greater than that of all human intellect the man who wrote these things and at whose table alexander the sixth contracted his last illness was no ascetic and no monkish obscurantist he was the pope's confidant and quite at home in all those political intrigues which later under leo x brought ruin upon him his book can only be regarded as a blow aimed at julius the second alexander's old enemy who now wore the tiara and was preparing to glorify his pontificate by the highest effort of which christian art was capable providence had granted him for the execution of his plans three of the greatest minds the world of art has ever known never had a monarch three such men as bramante michelangelo and raphael at once under his sway 
with their help julius the second resolved to carry out his ideas for the glory of his pontificate and the exaltation of the church what cardinal castellesi wanted was a downright rebellion against the pope if he with his following of obscurantists were acknowledged to be in the right all the plans of the brilliant and energetic ruler would end in failure or else be banned as worldly and julius the second would lose the glory of having united the greatest and noblest achievement of art with the memory of his pontificate and the interests of catholicism the pope gave cardinal castellesi his answer by making the vatican what it is the alteration and enlargement of the palace however passes almost unnoticed in comparison with the rebuilding of the basilica of st peter's on which the pope was resolved since fifteen o five with the palace fifteen o four bramante seemed to have set the crown on as many works but the plans for the new cathedral with all the sketches and alternatives that still survive and have been analyzed for us with true critical appreciation show us bramante not only in the height of his creative power but perhaps the most universal and gifted mind that ever used its mastery over architecture the form of the greek cross joined with the vast central cupola might be taken as a fitting symbol for catholicism the arms of the cross stretched out to the four winds tell us of the doctrine of universality the classical lines preferred by the latin race the elevation with its horizontal lines accentuated throughout bespeak that principle of rest and persistence which is the true heritage of the catholic south in contradistinction to the restless striving in search of a visionary ideal shown in the vertical principle of the north st peter's thus in the development planned by julius presented the most perfect picture of the majestic extension of the church but the paintings and decorations of the palace typified the conception of christianity humanity led to christ the evolution and great destiny of his church and lastly the spiritual empire in which the pope along with the greatest thinkers of his time beheld the goal of the renaissance and the scheme of a new and glorious future showing christianity in its fullest realization his own mausoleum gives proof how deeply julius the second was convinced that the chief part in this development fell to the papacy in general and to himself giuliano della Rovere, in particular the instruction which he gave to michelangelo to represent him as moses can bear but one interpretation that julius set himself the mission of leading forth israel the church from its state of degradation and showing it though he could not grant possession the promised land at least from afar that blessed land which consists in the enjoyment of the highest intellectual benefits and the training and consecration of all faculties of man's mind to union with god he bade michelangelo depict on the roof of the sistine chapel fifteen o eight to fifteen o nine how after the fall of our first parents mankind was led from afar towards this high goal symbolizing that shepherding of the soul to christ which clement the alexandrine had already seen and described when we see the sibyls placed among the patriarchs and prophets we know what this meant in the language of the theologians and religious philosophers of that time not only judaism but also greco-roman paganism is an antechamber to christianity and this antique culture gave not merely a negative 
but also a positive preparation for Christ. For this reason, it could not be considered as a contradiction of the Christian conception. There was a positive relationship between classical antiquity and Christianity. And so at one stroke, not only the artist, but the Pope, who doubtless planned and watched these compositions, took up that mediatory and conciliating attitude which some decades earlier had been adopted in Florence by Marsilio and Pico. But we see this thought more clearly and far more wonderfully expressed in the Camera della Segnatura, 1509. If we consider what place it was that Raphael was painting, and the character and individuality of the Pope, we cannot doubt that in these compositions also we are concerned not with the subjective inspiration of the artist who executed, but with the Pope's own well-considered and clearly formulated scheme. In the last few years it has been recognized that this scheme is entirely based on the ideas of the universe represented by the Florentine school. Especially it has been proved that the school of Athens is drawn after the model which Marsilio Ficino left of the Academia, the ancient assembly of philosophers, while Parnassus has an echo of that bella scuola of the great poets of old times whom Dante met in the limbo of the Inferno. The four pictures of the Camera della Segnatura represent the aspirations of the soul of man in each of its faculties, the striving of all humanity towards God by means of aesthetic perception, Parnassus, the exercise of reason in philosophical inquiry and all scientific research, the school of Athens, order in church and state, gift of ecclesiastical and secular laws, and finally, theology. The whole may be summed up as a pictorial representation of Pico della Mirandola's celebrated phrase, Philosophia Veritatum Queret, Theologia Invenet, Religio Possidet, and it corresponds with what Marsilio says in his Academy of Noble Minds when he characterizes our life's work as an ascent to the angels and to God. These compositions are the highest to which Christian art has attained and the thoughts which they express are one of the greatest achievements of the papacy. The principle elsewhere laid down is here reaffirmed, that the reception of the true Renaissance into the circle of ecclesiastical thought points to a widening of the limited medieval conception into universality, and indicates a transition to entire and actual Catholicity, like the great step taken by Paul, when he turned to the Gentiles and released the community from the limits of Judaistic teaching. This expansion and elevation of the intellectual sphere is the most glorious achievement of Julius II and of the papacy at the beginning of modern times. It must not only be remembered, but placed in the most prominent position when history sums up this chapter in human development. Since Luther's time, it has been the custom to consider the papacy of the Renaissance almost exclusively as viewed by theologians who emphasized only moral defects in the representatives of this institution and the neglect of ecclesiastical reform. Certainly, these are important considerations, and our further deductions will prove that we do not neglect them nor underestimate their immense significance for the life of the Church and Catholic unity. But from this standpoint, we can never succeed in grasping the situation. Ranke, in his Weltgeschichte, 
could write the history of the first hundred years of the roman empire without giving one word to all the scandalous tales that suetonius records the course of universal history and the importance of the empire for the wide provinces of the roman world were little influenced by them similarly private faults of the renaissance popes were fateful for the moral life of the church but the question of what the papacy was and meant for these times is not summed up or determined by them it is the right of these popes to be judged by the better and happier sides of their government the historian who portrays them should not be less skilful than the great masters of the renaissance who in their portraits of the celebrities of their time contrived to bring out the sitter's best and most characteristic qualities luther was not touched in the least degree by the artistic development of his time brought up amid the peasant life of saxony and thuringia he had no conception of the whole world that lay between dante and michelangelo and could not see that the eminence of the papacy consisted at that time in its leadership of europe in the province of art but to deny this now would be an injustice to the past the medici had not stood aloof from this evolution which reached its highest point under julius the second search has been made for the bridge by means of which the ideas of marsilio and his fellow thinkers were brought from florence to rome but there is no real need to guess at definite personages hundreds of correspondents had long since made all italy familiar with this school of thought among those who frequented the court of rome castiglione bibbiena sadoletto ingirami and Beraldus had been educated in the spirit of marsilio his old friend and correspondent raphael riario was now as cardinal of san giorgio and the pope's cousin one of the most influential personages in the vatican but before all we must remember giovanni de medici and his cousin giulio the future popes they were marsilio's pupils and after the banishment of their family he remained their friend and corresponded with them regarding them as the true heirs of lorenzo's spirit Raphael has represented the older cousin Giovanni standing near Julius II in the bestowal of spiritual laws. It was a kingdom of intellectual unity, which the brush of the greatest of painters was commissioned to paint on the walls of the Camera della Signora, the same idea which Julius caused to be proclaimed in 1512 in the opening speech of Egidius of Viterbo at the Lateran Council, referring to the classical proverb ha plus ha mitos tis aletheas effi simplex sermo veritatis the world of the beautiful of reason and science of political and social order had its place appointed in the kingdom of god upon earth a limit was set to the neglect of secular efforts to explore nature and history to the disregard of poetry and art and its rights were granted to healthy human reason organized in the state Gratiae et musei adeo sunt atque adeum referende, as Marsilio had said. The program laid down by Julius II, had it been carried out, might have saved Italy and preserved the Catholic principle when imperiled in the north. The task was to bring modern culture into harmony with Christianity, to unite the work of the Renaissance, so far as it was really sound and progressive, with ecclesiastical practice and tradition into one harmonious whole the recognition of the rights of intellectual activity 
of the ideal creations of human fancy and of the conception of the state were the basis for this union it remains to be shown why the attempt proved fruitless the reign of julius the second was one long struggle the sword never left his grasp which was more used to the handling of weapons than of holy writ on the whole the pope might at the close of his pontificate be contented with the success of his politics he had driven the french from italy and the retreat of louis the twelfth from lombardy opened the gates of florence once more to the medici the council of pisa for which france had used her influence had come to naught and its remnant was scattered before the anger of the victorious pontiff and as he had freed italy from the ascendancy of france so he now hoped to throw off that of spain it may be a legend that as he was dying he murmured fuori i babari but these words certainly were the expression of his political thought but this second task was not within his power on the third of may fifteen twelve he had opened the lateran council to counteract that of pisa at first none of the great powers were represented there fifteen cardinals fourteen patriarchs ten archbishops and fifty-seven bishops all of them italians with a few heads of monastic orders formed this assembly which was called the fifth general lateran council neither julius nor leo was ever able to convince the world that this was an ecumenical assembly of christendom julius died in the night of february twentieth to twenty first fifteen thirteen guicciardini calls him a ruler unsurpassed in power and endurance but violent and without moderation elsewhere he says that he had nothing of a priest but vesture and title the dialogue julius exclusus attributed sometimes to hutton sometimes to erasmus and perhaps written by fausto andrellini is the harshest condemnation of the pope and his reign o freneticum sed mundanum ne mundanum quidem sed ethnicum imo ethnixis scleratiorum gloriaris te plurimum potuisse et decinda fedora ad inflammata bella ad stragus hominum excitandis but at bottom the pamphlet is exceedingly one-sided and the outcome of french party spirit although in many cases the author speaks the truth and for instance even at that time fifteen thirteen unfortunately was able to put such words in the pope's mouth as nos ecclesiam vocamus sacris edis sacerdotes et precipue curiam romanum me imprimis qui capit sun ecclesiae yet this is more a common trait of the office than a characteristic of julius the second it almost raises a smile to read in Pallavicino that on his deathbed the magnanimity of julius was only equalled by his piety and that although he had not possessed every priestly perfection perhaps because of his natural inclinations or because of the age which had not yet been disciplined by the council of trent yet his greatest mistake had been made with the best intention and proved disastrous by a mere chance when as head of the church and at the same time as a mighty prince he undertook a work that for these very reasons exceeded the means of his treasury the building of st peter's we see that neither his enemies nor his apologists had the least idea wherein julius's true greatness consisted with such divided opinions it cannot surprise us that contemporaries and coming generations alike 
found it difficult to form a reasoned and final judgment of the pontificate which immediately followed. End of section two. Recording by Colleen McMahon.